Salute omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 17b, Aeneid Book 4, Lines 160-218. In this episode, you will learn that hooking up in a cave counts as a wedding, that rumors are bad, and that sarcasm is the best way to get a god to listen. Interea magno misceri murmura caelum incipit in sequitur con mixta grandine nimbus, et tirii comites passet Troiana juventus dardaniusque nepos veneres diversa per agros tecta metu petiera, ruunt de montibus amnes, spe luncam dido dux et Troianos eandem deveniunt, primet tellus et pronuba juno dant signum, Volse regnes et conscius aether conubiis sumoculularunt vertice nimpai. Ille dies primus leti primusque malorum causa fuit, neque nim specie famae moetur, neciam fortivum dido meditator amorem. Conjugium vocat, hoc praetexit nomine culpam. Ex templo Libiae magnas it fama per urbes. Fama malum qua non aliud velacios ulum. Mobilitate viget vires quad quirit eundo. Parva metu primo mox se satolit in auras. Ingreditur solet caput internubila condit. Ilam terra parens irin retata deorum extreme mut perhibent coen celedoque sororem. Pro genuit pedibus celeret pernicibus alis. Monstro rendingens cui quat sunt corpore plumae, tot vigiles oculi subter mirabile dictu, tot linguae, tot idora sonant tot subrigat ares. Nocte volat caeli medio terraeque per umbram, stridens, nec dulci declinat lumina samno. Luce sedet custos aut sumi culmine tecti turibus aut altis, et magnas territat urbes. Tam ficti praeque tenax quam nuntia veri. Haec tum multiplici populos sermone replebat gaudens, et pariter factat quinfecta canebat. Venis sine an Troiano sanguine cretum, cui se pulcra viro dignetur jungera dido, Nunc hiam inter se luxu quam longa foera, regnor rememores turpique cupidine captos. Haec passem dea foida virum defundit in ora, protinus ad regem cursus detorquet yarban, incendit quanimum dictis at quagerat iras. Hic hamone satus rapta garimantide nympha, templa yawi centum latis emania regnis. Centaras posuit vigilim que sacraverat ignem. Excubias di vai ternas pecudumque crurore. Pingua solet variis florentia limina certis. Is qua mens animet rumora census amaro. 
Dicitur anta ras medi inter numina divum, multa joem manibus suplex orase supinis, Jupiter omnipotens, cui nunc maurusia pictis gens epulata toris, lanaeum libata norem, aspicis haec ante genitor, cum fulmina torques, ne qui quoremus caeci quenubibus ignes terrificant animos, et inania murmura miscent. Femina, quae nostris erans infinibus urbem exiguam pretio possuit, cui litus arandum cuique loci leges dedimus conubia nostra repulit, ac dominaine an in regna recapit. Et nunc ille paris cum simiviro comitatu, maionia mentum mitra crinemque madentem, sub nexus, rapto potitur. Nos munera templis quipe tuis ferimus, famamque foemus inanem. Meanwhile, the sky begins to be mixed with a great rumble. A storm cloud follows with hail mixed in, and everywhere the Tyrian companions and the Trojan youth and the Dardanian grandson of Venus sought shelters scattered through the fields in fear. Rivers rush down from the mountains. Dido and the Trojan leader arrive at the same cave. First, both Earth and Matron of Honor Juno give the sign. Fires flashed and heaven was witness to the wedding, and nymphs howled on the highest peak. That day was the first cause of death and the first of evils. Nor indeed is she moved by appearance or rumor. No longer does Dido ponder a secret love. She calls it marriage. With this name she covers her guilt. Immediately, rumor goes through the great cities of Libya. Rumor, an evil which not any other is swifter than. She thrives on mobility and acquires strength by going. Small at first because of fear. Soon she raises herself into the air and she strides on the ground and establishes her head in the clouds. Parent Earth, provoked by anger of the gods, as they report, gave birth to that one last, a sister to Coios and Enceladus, swift in feet and agile wings, a horrendous monster, huge, for whom there are as many feathers on her body as there are watchful eyes underneath, marvelous to say, as many tongues, as many mouths resound, she raises up as many ears. She flies at night in the middle of heaven and earth, hissing through the shadow, nor does she lower her eyes in sweet sleep. In the light she sits as a guard either at the top of the highest roof or in tall towers, and terrorizes great cities, as tenacious a messenger of the faults and distorted as of the truth. This one then was filling the peoples with duplicitous talk, rejoicing, and equally was singing things done and not done. That Aeneas, born of Trojan blood, had come, to whom as a husband beautiful Dido deigns to join herself. That now they keep each other warm through the winter, however long, in luxury, unmindful of kingdoms and captured by shameful desire. The foul goddess spreads these things far and wide into the mouths of men. Immediately she turns her course to King Yarbus, and she inflames his mind with words and piles on anger. This one, sprung from Hamon after a Garamantian nymph had been ravaged, placed one hundred huge temples to Jove in his wide kingdoms, one hundred altars and he had consecrated the watchful fire, eternal guard of the gods, and the rich ground with the blood of sheep, and the flowery thresholds with various reeds. And he, crazed of mind and inflamed by bitter rumor, is said to have prayed many things to Jupiter as a suppliant with upturned hands before the altars among the divine powers of the gods. All-powerful Jupiter, to whom now the Marusian people pour out Linnaean honor, having feasted on embroidered couches, are you seeing this? 
Or, Father, when you hurl your lightning, do we fear you in vain? And do blind fires in the clouds terrify our minds and stir up useless rumbling? A woman who, while wandering in our territories, placed a small city for a price, to whom we gave a shore to be plowed, and to whom we gave the laws of the place, has rejected our marriage, and has received Lord Aeneas into her kingdom. And now that Paris, with his half-male company, having tied up his chin and dripping hair in a Myonian headband, gains possession of a thing stolen. Obviously, we bring gifts to your temples and cherish an empty reputation. So a lot happens in this episode. We have moved into Book 4, which follows much of the form of a tragedy, with Virgil drawing influence from Greek writers such as Apollonius and Euripides, and modeling Dido after tragic female figures such as Ariadne, Nausicaa, Penelope, and particularly Medea, who really deserves her own episode. Medea's tragic story is beyond the present scope of this podcast, but if you are unfamiliar with Medea, sorceress of Colchis, who was the only reason Jason was able to get the Golden Fleece at all, who saved his life multiple times and who solved every one of his problems with her cunning intelligence and skill, who betrayed and left her family and everything she knew to be with him, who married him and fathered his children and accompanied him into exile, only to be dumped so he could marry someone younger and prettier and royaler, then I encourage you to check out the Myths and Legends podcast, episodes 46A through D, on Jason and the Argonauts. It's worth it. We've already seen how Venus uses Cupid in disguise to make Dido fall in love with Aeneas. Dido spends most of the beginning of Book 4 slowly giving in to her feelings for Aeneas, but still being mostly resolute about her vow to remain unmarried. In the events before we pick up with the AP section, Dido is having a conversation with Anna, her sister, where she confides that Aeneas would be the one person who would tempt her to break her vow. Anna, using the always persuasive, do it now and ask forgiveness later argument, among other justifications, persuades Dido to forsake her oath. And the two of them visit shrines of the gods throughout the city, making sacrifices and searching for favorable omens, which Dido sees because she wants to see them. Meanwhile, Venus and Juno agree to get the two together, each goddess thinking they are outwitting the other. And Juno, since she lacks originality, decides that another storm is the best way to go about setting this up. Conveniently for the plot, the Carthaginians and the Trojans have decided to go hunting together. As the group is getting ready to go, Aeneas enters the room, prompting a simile comparing him to Apollo and mirroring Dido's Diana simile from Book 1. It is during the hunt that we join the Latin lines in the Divine Storm, the language recalling the other divine storm from Book 1, especially the line Interia Magno Miscere Murmura Caelum. The intensity of the storm drives everyone to different shelters, and, conveniently for the plot, Aeneas and Dido end up in the same cave, where one thing leads to another. Orchestrated by Juno, the earth, divinities, and forces of nature hold a mock wedding ceremony, complete with matron of honor, witnesses, torches, and a wedding shout, all elements of a traditional Roman marriage ceremony. After the cave, Virgil spends a moment foreshadowing Dido's tragic situation, calling that day the first of evil and of death. He also mentions that Dido feels guilt or fault for her decision, covering those feelings over by calling their relationship a marriage. This line recalls a statement that Dido makes to Anna about her feelings for Aeneas, about him being the one person to make her forsake her vow and how this would bring on culpa. Virgil stops the narrative at this point to give an extended allegory of fama, rumor, Fama is the last child of the earth, sibling to Coeus and Enceladus, a mythological titan and a giant respectively, both of whom waged war against the Olympian gods. The physical description of Fama is very vivid, 
depicting a feathered-eyed, eared-mouthed monster, always watching, always listening, always talking, and gaining strength and size by moving. Being on the back end of recent civil war, the Romans would have had intimate, first-hand experience with the kinds of rumors that would have run rampant about the whereabouts, actions, etc. of one faction or another as they all vied for control of the city. But in this allegory, what makes Fama particularly dangerous is that she spreads truth just as often as she spreads falsehood. If everything were untrue, then rumor could be discounted. If it were all true, then it would be news. Instead, it is a mixture, fact and fiction and duplicitous meaning all woven together. And if you look at the report that Fama spreads about Dido and Aeneas, it isn't really untruthful. Aeneas is sprung from Trojan blood. He and Dido are a couple. It is winter at this time. Dido will use that as a reason that Aeneas shouldn't leave her a little bit later. And they are spending it together. There's probably at least some keeping each other warm involved. They do desire each other, thanks to Cupid. The only questionable part is the fact that they are unmindful of their kingdoms and captive to shameful desire. But Aeneas has stopped heading for Italy to found his city, so he is neglecting his responsibilities for his desire of her. And Book 4, lines 68-89 to tell us that Dido desires only to spend time with Aeneas, and pines for him when he is absent, to such an extent that she has stopped construction on her city and stopped leading her people. So she has neglected her responsibilities for her desire of him. So Fama isn't lying, just spinning and framing the truth in such a way as to make their actions seem shameful, irresponsible, and wrong. Fama is a background character, but she weaves throughout this entire section of the epic. Virgil states that, after the cave, Dido no longer cares about Fama. But it is Fama who reports their relationship to Yarbus. It will be Fama who reports Aeneas' decision to leave to Dido. And at the end, Fama will run rampant through Carthage, bringing Dido's story to a close. So rumor of the relationship winds its way to Yarbus. If you think back to episode 7 where I discussed Dido's origin story, Yarbus was a North African king whom Dido loopholed out of a lot more land than he had originally intended to give her. We learn here that Yarbus is the son of two deities, Hamon or Ammon, a North African Egyptian god that Romans associated with Jupiter, and a nymph, which actually gives him a higher demigod ranking than Aeneas, who only has divinity on one half of his family tree. And we learn that Dido has rejected Yarbus's marriage offer, so he's a little upset about it when Aeneas enters the picture. Some of his language, like rapto potitur, indicating that he believes that Dido belongs to him, and so he runs to his dad. In Yarbus's prayer, a few things need clarification before we can examine the speech as a whole. Marusian means North African. Linnaean honor is metonymy for wine, so Yarbus is talking about pouring out libations or drink offerings to Jupiter. Feasts on embroidered couches refers to a specific Roman religious practice called lectisternium. One of the many different religious rituals of the Romans was called an epulum, a specific type of religious feast for the gods, where worshippers would serve food to the numen, the divine presence and power of the deity. The word epulata inside Yarbus's prayer refers specifically to this practice of holding a feast for a divinity. Early in Rome's history, the feast of the epulum changed its form evolving to include actual statues or images of the gods reclining on couches and being served food, and gaining the name Lectisternium, from two words meaning, essentially, spread out on a couch. Myonia is the ancient name for the region of western Turkey where Troy was located. In his prayer, Yarbus refers to Aeneas as Paris, the name intended as an insult carrying the double meaning of wife-stealer and effeminate person. 
Many of Paris's actions and mannerisms were depicted as effeminate in the Iliad, and his weapon of choice was a bow and arrow, a coward's weapon in an honor culture world since you can kill people from far away without looking them in the eye. This notion of effeminacy is further emphasized in Yarbus' insults of Aeneas's hair dripping with oils and perfumes, the emphasis on sitting in luxury and neglecting their kingdoms while they waste time together, the description of Aeneas' companions as semi-wero, and his mention of Aeneas' hat. A mitra is a head covering that wrapped under the chin and over the head. In a Roman mind, it was a characteristically feminine article of clothing and was associated with Eastern culture. Yarbus is evoking here the ethnic stereotype of the soft, effeminate Easterner. This stereotype was prevalent in Rome, as, for example, Catullus, writing his poetry contemporary to Julius Caesar's Gallic War, describes the Arabes Males, the soft Arabs, as well as depicting Ariadne wearing a mitra. The tone that Yarbus takes with Jupiter is very blunt and sarcastic, insulting Jupiter's divine power, saying that they worship and fear him uselessly, and that his lightning and thunder are empty threats. There are so many examples from mythology of people who challenge the gods or insult their power or offend them, who pay dearly for it, whether they actually deserve it or not. In the Aeneid itself, not only have we seen the case of Ajax Oileus, who was killed for the legitimate offense of defiling a temple and a priestess, but in Book 6, we will see the example of Messenus, one of Aeneas's companions, who picks up a conch shell and blows into it, which Triton takes as an affront to his authority and sends a wave to drag him out to sea and drown him. We also have the example of Aeneas himself, who, despite being known as loyal and dutiful and pious, earns the wrath of Juno simply by existing. So how is it that Yarbus can get away with insulting Jupiter like this and not get smited? Well, the short answer is because he has paid for the right to do so. The Latin phrase do ut des, meaning I give that you may give, captures the essence of Greco-Roman religious ritual. The Greco-Roman world essentially viewed religious rites as an economic contract between the mortal and the deity, making sacrifices, holding feasts, consecrating temples, or vowing to do so after the fact on the mortal end, all carried with them the expectation of divine support or favor or protection or something else of value returned in exchange. We are told a very important piece of information about Yarbus at the beginning of his section in the text, and it is critical to understanding why he feels he can approach Jupiter the way he does. We learn that he has built and sanctified 100 temples to Jupiter throughout his territory, and that he is diligent in observing ritual, as Virgil's comments about fires and sheep blood let us know. What this means is that Yarbus has a bargaining chip, or hundred, that he can use to call in a divine favor. Yarbus has held up his end of the exchange contract, so he is calling out Jupiter for failing to uphold his. It probably also helps that he's Jupiter's kid. Yarbus's passive-aggressive prayer works, and Jupiter immediately sends Mercury, the messenger god, down to kick Aeneas in the pants and get him moving back towards Italy, which we will see next time. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. How do the events in the cave mirror a traditional Roman wedding ceremony? How does Virgil attempt to create pathos for Dido? What elements of Fama make her particularly dangerous? How does Virgil foreshadow Dido's future fate? What role does rumor play in the events of Caesar's commentary? Where does the Roman association between luxury and effeminacy appear in Caesar's commentary? 
Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete. <laughs>